passage, passages, verses from Psalm 31 as almost a warning to them and a, and a strengthening to his soul. In Jeremiah 6, 25. In Jeremiah 20, 46. Jeremiah 49, 29. All quotes from this passage. Lamentation 2, 22. Um, also, he calls on this passage from memory. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. Jonah in the middle of, of what I would call extreme suffering in the belly of a whale, remembers Psalm 31. And in verse 8, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's a quote from Psalm 31. He takes that, and that strengthens him in the belly of the whale. This passage has been a favorite of so many. It takes on fresh insight in Luke 23, verse 46, when our Lord on the cross cries out from the cross, a direct quote from Psalm 31, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Psalm 31, we could say, takes on the role of a Christ-centered perspective and has been treated that way from that time till now. Great saints of the past have treated Psalm 31 as a death psalm, a psalm to remember in the days of suffering and dying. Uh, we know that Luther quoted this psalm on his deathbed. Melanchthon quoted this psalm on his deathbed. John Huss, after being arrested and brought before the bishop for, for execution, the bishop said to John Huss, who, 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 believe it or not, John Huss was uh, in the 1300s the Martin Luther of his day. He was bringing about a reformation of sorts. In the, so he faced this persecution, and Huss Standing before his executioner, the executioner, the bishop, says, Into the hands of the devil we commit your soul. And Huss looked him in the eyes and said, Into the hands of my God I commit my spirit. It was a bulwark against the persecution that he faced. And it carried his soul even in death. Calvin, in his pastoral duties, visited the sick and the dying in Geneva. And we know that from others' accounts, John, uh, uh, John Calvin used Psalm 31 almost extensively in those days. This psalm is very difficult to outline. It's not, not very easy, mainly because there are only two parts here. Psalm chapter 31, verses 1 through 20 go together. That's the body of the psalm. And then Psalm 21 and 24, an application to the body. That's all there is. And that's a, that's, that's, that's a pretty difficult, and it's disagreed upon. Some divided other ways. But I want you to see a very simple breakdown here, and then we want to uh, expose or explain what it means to us in our day. In the first five verses, we see David praying. And then he moves from his prayer, and in his prayer, he calls on God as his refuge. If you see, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Then he moves from this prayer into a, a, a movement of trust. In verses six through nine, we find uh, six through eight, we find that David moves from prayer to trusting in God, a statement of his faith in God. Look at what it says in verse six: "I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols." There's the quote from 
Jonah in the belly of the whale. But I trust in the Lord. He declares his trust. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. And you have set my feet in a broad place. Verses 9 through 13 move into a prayer again. A prayer this time not of commitment or in praise of God being his fortress, but a lament. A prayer of lament and a prayer of anguish. In verses 9 through 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. They didn't like to see David coming. No one wanted to be his friend. He wasn't the guy you invited to the party because he was constantly weeping and in, in, in distress of his soul. But he goes on to say, those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. We see here his deep brokenness. A broken cistern. One who is used up and has been abused and cast to the side. Everyone's forgotten. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. Right on the heels of this lament, our pattern continues. Prayer, trust. Prayer, and now this next section, verse 14 through 18, trust. But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant, calling on the blessing of Aaron. Save me in your steadfast love. O oh Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to the grave. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. And then... In verses 19 through 20, he returns. We would expect to a prayer, but what we find is praise. It's, in a sense, it's a prayer, but it's, it's a praise this time. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for, the fear of you, for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men and store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. And finally, in verses 21 through 24, we find the application of the first five divisions. The application is threefold. Blessed be the Lord. It's praising God. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had, in, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Second application, love the Lord. All you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Third application. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Be faithful. Praise God. Be in praise of God. Love God. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And at the end of the day, believe in God. That's the end of the psalm. 
I bring a sermon this morning called God is our rock of refuge. God is our rock of refuge. You know, in the days where um, life is like the day is today, beautiful, sunny, blue skies, everything seems right, we tend to become self-dependent. That's human nature. We, when things are going well, marriage is good, kids are all healthy, everybody's kind of going through life and it's routine and the money's coming in, the bills are paid on time, everybody's happy, we forget about God. And so because God loves us, He takes us from those days. He gives us those days because He's a good Father. He's a loving, kind, gracious God. He knows our limitations. He knows what we need in our times of, of, uh, of greatest struggles. He brings us a lot of times to that peak. But like all peaks, there are valleys. And so once we've hit that peak, we often find that God takes us back into that valley. Because in the valley... In the struggle, in the storm, in the dangerous moments where our life seems to be, our spiritual life seems to be weighing in the balance, that's when we grow in our faith and rely on God completely and only on God. And these valleys come in many shapes and sizes. And to one person, the valley you're going through seems insignificant. It doesn't seem like much at all. You might find yourself when you're on the peak and your brother's in the valley to say, what's wrong with him? Is he not believing in God? Does he not have faith? Come on, man. Life's good. God loves us. The gospel's true. Only in a few weeks or a few months, our brother's on the peak and we're in the valley. And now our soul cries out, Oh God, I waste away. My bones are drying up. I have no hope. Everyone has forsaken me. You've been through that? Some of you already have. Some of you haven't gotten there yet. You're young in the faith. You're still cruising at a high altitude. You haven't hit any turbulence. But trust me, those days are coming. Those turbulent days are coming. This morning, I left, the home, left home. Normally, my pattern, leave home, come here, uh, kind of get things going, get some time to pray, think. But I woke this morning, um, normal time, got up, and was immediately kind of I felt like I was in a fog. That, that fog hadn't lifted, okay? But pastors have a job to do. You've been waiting all week to come here and be encouraged from the Word. And so I say to my soul, soul, today's a day. We got to get up and go. There's no laying around. There's no whining. There's no calling in sick. You got to go. I started driving in and I thought, you know, I called my grandma. My grandma's always kind of been a rock in my life. I know some of y'all think that's sissy. You know, that's okay. So I call. Usually I call her after church. I'm on a high, feeling good. You know, I call my grandma. She asks about the service. I re-preach the sermon. She listens patiently. But today I call her before. I said, Mama Betty, what are you doing? She said, I'm here with your mom. That's unusual that she's there on Sunday morning. My mom's in a nursing home. Many of you know her story. Say, you want to talk to your mom? Well, that's always a tough one. You know, my mom can't communicate real well. She's been struck with Alzheimer's, has had it now for over 10 years. She, I said, well, can she talk? You know, is she in a position? Is she feeling good today? Well, she's getting, they're feeding her right now. They're taking care of her and doing some things. Okay. And so I talked to her. 
And that fog thickened. I mean, I've just felt so depressed. You ever been there? You feel bad, and then you talk to somebody, and you feel worse, not better. And I'm thinking the whole time that I'm trying to communicate with my mom. Why am I, what, what, what is this about? You know, God, come on. Don't you know what I need? Don't you know that I don't need another burden today? I, I'm already struggling, right? And so at the end of the conversation, I just said to her, I ain't got much out of it. I didn't think she's getting much out of it. I told her what I was going to do, you know. She's listening. I said, Mama, Jesus loves you. She said, yep. I said, Mama, I'm going to go preach today. And she got, you could tell she just kind of got excited. I said, Mama, I love you. And all she could say was, mixed up, confused words. The clearest confession was yep. Because Jesus loves me. Yep. Turbulence are coming. Yours may be Alzheimer's. Yours may be cancer. Yours may be divorce. Yours may be the loss of a child. Turbulence are coming. And your clearest confession is, yes, Jesus loves me. That's Psalm 31. There was nothing external to tell David that God loved him. He's in the cliffs and the crags of the rocks, the mountains of Judea, hiding for his life. The city's under siege. His kingdom is being destroyed. And yet his confession at the end is, believe in God. I just want to say to you, some of you need to believe in God this morning. Some of you for the first time and some of you for the thousandth time need to believe in God this morning. Because your life, though you're healthy on the outside, inside is in turmoil. And you wonder, does God really love me? Does God really care for me? Is God really overseeing me? So let's draw our strength from where David drew his, from God. First of all, we see in this psalm that God is our rock of refuge. God is our rock of refuge. David uses this metaphor more than any other when he's talking about God. He uses it in Psalm 18, 19, Psalm 28, Psalm 61, Psalm 62, Psalm 71, Psalm 46. He uses a very similar refuge, the Tower of Refuge. God is always seen in David's life to be a place of hiding and protection. And so he uses that here very affectionately. He's in the midst of the greatest struggles of his life. And all he can know is that God is for me. Who can be against me? God protects me. I shall fear no evil. First of all, we know God is our protector. Verse 3. We know that God is our protector. For you are, you notice his choice there, you are my rock and my fortress. God is that. But look back at verse 2 because it's not only that he knows it, he wants to experience it. He knows it by faith. He knows it because God has said he is such in the Old Testament letters. We know that in the law, God called himself a rock 
for the people. A protection. In the stories of the conquering of the promised land, God was the one, Joshua said, who ran our enemies out before us with bees and with hornets. He drove out from before our face the armies of Canaan. God was their protection. God was their rock. David knew this. But look at verse 2. Because verse 3 says, I know it. But verse 3 is, I mean, verse 2 is saying he's pleading with God for protection. This causes lots of struggles for people who are outside the faith. Here this man says in a turn of two phrases, you are my rock and you are my fortress, but that's on the heels of him saying, be, that word be there in the Hebrew, that verb is, is, a, is calling on God to be something, do something, help me, be a rock of refuge for me, a, a fortress to save me, be that for me, God. At one moment, he knows it. And yet he wants to experience it. He doesn't simply want to know it like we know a fact or like we know a textbook. He wants to feel it. He wants to know it. He wants to deepen his soul. And he wants to be able to recline himself on the fact that God is his refuge. Some of you know God is, but you haven't experienced God as your protector. Oh, you've read about it and you've studied it. And some of you have studied it a lot. And you can go to verse after verse after verse that says God is a rock. God is our protector. God is our deliverer. God saves us. But you don't know it experientially. And in the moment of experience, our faith is proven true. In the moment of our experience, faith is made known to be true. And that's what David's doing right here. He's saying, I want to know it, not just in my mind, but I want to know it in my soul. I want to experience it. So we see here that God is our rock and He is our refuge. He calls Him that again and again. Look back at verse 1. He calls Him His refuge and then, and then He goes over in verse uh, 2 and says God is a rock of refuge. There it is again. God is a strong fortress. Another way to say He's a rock of refuge. And then in verse 3 He says you are my, for you are my rock and my fortress, my refuge. And so he's, this is the central thing. In verse 4, you are my refuge. He repeats it again. The overall summation statement of the first five verses in David's prayer is that God, you are my protector. God, you are my hope. God, you are the one who delivers me. Secondly, in this passage, we see that God is the only one worthy of our trust. Right on the heels of saying God is our rock and refuge, then he says God is the only one worthy of our trust. Because he's the only one who can protect us, he's the only one we should trust in. We don't trust in horses and chariots and swords and spears and bows, but the people of Israel trust in the name of God most high. That's who we trust in. In our vernacular, we might say we don't trust in marriages and schooling and businesses and money and retirement and friends and companions and success, but we trust in God most high. He's the only stronghold. He's the only refuge for us. And He's the only one worthy to be trusted in this life. We trust God because He knows our pain. Look at verse 7. He identifies uh, to us that he knows that God knows his pain. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. 
That word seen means to know. He knows what I'm going through. God knows everything. God knows every minute of every day before it takes place. He knows every event that's coming to you that you cannot foresee. God knows your pain. He knows your past pain, present pain, and future pain. God knows it. All right, but he goes a step farther. We trust God because he not only knows our pain, but because he comes to our aid. In the second part of B, 7b, he says, you have known the distress of my soul. That word know means it's an active idea. And it, in other words, God knows our pain and he responds to our pain. He gets busy working in our pain. He has a plan for our pain. God knows me and he comes to my aid. We trust God because he keeps us from our enemy. Verse 8. And you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. We know God could deliver us into our enemy's hand. We know God could turn our souls over if he chose. But he doesn't. He keeps us. He protects us. He watches over us. You have set my feet on a broad place. So we trust God because he places us in safety. That's the last part of that 8 verse. God knows us. He, in our pain, he's, he responds when we are in pain to work all things together for our good. He doesn't deliver us over to our pain or to our enemy. And then he sets us on a broad way, a broad plane. In the Bible, we know that that broadness was secure. In a, in a, in a, in a setting like David was in, up in the mountains, in the craggy rocks and cliffs and, and all that he was facing, a broad path symbolized ease and symbolized strength and symbolized security. So in contrast to me hanging on to this cliff here, hiding from Saul or Absalom or whoever the choice of the day was that David's having to flee, which, by the way, we miss that, don't we? We read all the stories about David, the victorious giant killer and David the one who marches before the ark of God in victory and dances in joy David sitting in his palace David overseeing his son transferred into the kingdom and raising up a palace for God all these victorious scenes but do we just delete the fact that David spends most of his life running from somebody he spends a lot of years doesn't he a lot of moments of his life are spent hiding in a cave in a rock so it's in this place, you can kind of visualize him standing against the cliff, walk, sheer rock here, enemies out there, I, trapped. But God hasn't delivered me to their hand. And even if I'm barely clinging to life up here, I'm in a broad place. I'm safe. I'm secure. Why? Because God is my refuge. God can be trusted as my refuge. Some of you are inches, spiritually speaking, from the edge of the cliff this morning. And you wonder, will I survive? Will I make it? And I'm telling you, God will not fail to deliver you. And it's uncomfortable to talk about those kinds of things in public because what we typically do in the Western churches display all these big pictures of God's, you know, victory and, and, God, and those things are true. But listen, in this present life, we're in the midst of a war. 
We're fighting for our faith. Struggling against the forces of enemies, of, our evil, of the evil one. This is not ease and relaxation. God didn't save you to take you on a spiritual vacation. He saved you when you were on a vacation, partying it up, living it up. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but don't ever miss that. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. You were doing exactly what your heart wanted to do. Life, in a sense, was easy. There was no resistance. There was no one fighting you. When God saved you, he enlisted you into a family. A family that is a fighting army of a family. He didn't enlist you to come in and sit down and drink sweet tea and, and talk about the, the weather and reminisce about the sports events. He saved you to put you on the front line of the spiritual fight. On the cliff, hanging on to life, saying, if God isn't going to save me, protect me, deliver me, I can't be delivered. And if you're not feeling that, more times than not, something's not right in your life. If you're at ease in this world, something's not right. Something's amiss. Chances are your protection is being found in something other than God. You've retreated to the back lines. You're on R&R. And because you look a lot like the world and respond a lot like, lot like the world, there's no one attacking you. I had a guy tell me one time we were talking about uh, faith and about struggle. And he was saying the mark of Christianity is that it is a struggle. You don't need to be worried about struggling. You need to be worried when you're not struggling. When spiritually speaking, everything is okay and I'm at ease and, whew, man, it's easy. If that, that's the, something's not right. Because in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus said, if this world hated me, will it not hate you? He didn't save us out of the world. He saved us in the world, right? And that's what David's expressing. God is my refuge. Because even though I stand on this craggy cliff about to fall out seemingly to my death, I trust that God is a broad place. He's safe. He can be trusted in this struggle. Third, we see in this passage that God wants us to cry out to him with our pain. So many times we're hiding our pain from God. And what God wants is for us to be honest about our pain. In 9 verse 14. We get this, of uh, 9 through, four, uh, through 13, excuse me, we get this, this lament, this cry from the depths of David's soul. So many good words in here. The Lord for I'm, is gracious to me for I'm in distress. Be gracious to me because I'm in stress. Look how he describes his physical appearance. My eyes are wasted away from grief. He's been in such turmoil, such pouring out of his soul and his body that he is weak he is swollen. He is, uh, in his appearance, he is downcast. For my life is spent with sorrow. And in other words, it's, that word spent means it's being wrecked with sorrow. And my years are with sighing. The majority of David's life was sighing and crying and weeping, not celebrating. That was the majority of his days. This is not a young David. This is an old David. This is a David who is the apple of God's eye. This is the David who is the one who in his very appearance and in his very position represented Christ before the people. 
And yet he describes his life as one of suffering and pain and sorrow. Why? Verse 11, because I'm a reproach. All of my neighbors have abandoned me. All of my acquaintance want nothing to do with me. And even when a stranger meets me on the street, he turns away. This is not like any experience of an earthly king we know anything about, is it? When kings walk the streets of their kingdoms, people run to their side and bow before them. Not David. When David walked the streets of Jerusalem or was out in the desert, everyone wanted to be. It was like, you ever seen the, the, the cartoons where the cloud's raining on one guy? Everybody said, that's David. Don't get too close to him. Bad things happen. They've left him. They've, they've deserted him. He feels all alone. He dreads the fact that everyone dreads him. And they've forgotten him. Like one who's dead. He's out away from his, his palace, away from his position, and he's forgotten. Verse 13 tells us kind of what's going on there. And with the best way to understand this is to see that grace is the result that he wants. Verse 9, we, we want God to be gracious to us. Verse 9, first part of the verse, be gracious to me, O Lord. That's his request. But then if we back up, what is it that he wants God to be gracious about? Well, first we see he's in spiritual depression in verses the second part of 9 and 10. He's describing a spiritual reality. He's saying his soul, you notice, is wasting away. Not just his body. His life is being spent. Not just the years of his life physically, but the years, the best years of his life, his, his, his mature years are spent in sorrow and sighing. So he wants God's grace because he's in spiritual depression. Why is he in spiritual depression? So we keep asking the test questions. It keeps giving us answers. Verses 11 through 12. His enemies have surrounded him. My adversaries are all around me. I'm the reproach of my neighbor. I'm treated like an object of dread. Those who see me in the street flee. So we see his enemies have had a success in spreading about the rumors of David's fall. And now everyone dreads being with him. In verse 13, we see the threat that was being spread. They're whispering, you notice that? They're whispering terror on every side. So he's crying out for grace the, the, as the result of this attack. The chief end here is that they are trying to destroy him. Terror is on every side. Scheme, they have schemed together and plotted to take his life. And God, he's crying out to God for his deliverance. Forth in this, we move then back to a statement of trust. He's prayed. He went to trust. He's lamented. Now he's going back to trust. Verses 14 through 18. We are always in God's hand. If you look at 15a, it says, But my times are in your hand. That's often been used. What times are in God's hands? All times are in God's hands. Well, I thought God did good and the devil did bad, and we just hope to come out on the positive end of that exchange. You ever been around that kind of theology? When good things happen, we glorify God. When bad things happen, we blame it on Satan. Notice what David says. My times, plural, are in your hand. The good and the bad is in God's hand. David, like Job, 
and like Jesus and like Paul gives no credit to Satan for any of this but rather gives it to God it's to God that he says my times are in your hands God when the good's here and when the bad is here you're in control I trust in you as my refuge because you have my life in your hand all of my life the good and the bad we trust in God because He alone knows the end from the beginning. If you read through 14 through 18, it's obvious that He's talking about the sovereignty of God over His life. But I trust in you, verse 14, O Lord, I say, You are my God. That's the statement of trust. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Oh Lord, let me not put you put to be put to shame, for I call upon you. From the beginning, he knows that God knows his struggle, and he knows that God is his deliverer. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go into the grave. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. So he trusts God here. God is worthy of our trust is again the theme of this passage, 14 through 18. And the reason he trusts him is because his life's in God's hands, good and bad, and God knows the end from the beginning. He trusts God. Verse uh, the fifth stanza is that God is the object of our praise. He moves from prayer into uh, trust, from lament or prayer into trust. And we would expect what? Prayer, right? We would expect him to pray. But notice he shifts from a prayer of lament to a prayer of praise. In verse 19, it begins, God is good. If we could just say overall, what does verses 19 through, uh, verses 19 through 20, what do they teach us? God is good. That's a simple truth. Notice the backdrop which makes the truth profound the backdrop is not as we've said is not pretty the backdrop is destruction people trying to kill him take his life and yet what does he say about God God is good some of us need that don't we We just need to rise in our cloud of depression and say God is good this is not a false passing over of all that's going on in his life. This is an admission that even in the worst of my days, God is good. Even at the end of my life, God is good. Even in death, God is good. No matter what I face, God is good. He praises God in the storm. He calls on God as being good. And God's goodness is a fortress in the day of trouble. If you look in verse 20, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. God's goodness is seen here as a fortress. God's, God is seen here as one who can protect his people because he is good. Based on his character. What's the application? The application of this psalm is laid out clearly. Sometimes we have to look for applications. David gives us an application. Verse 22, the application is we should praise God. In the midst of life struggle, we praise God. I said in my alarm, I said in, in my haste, in my fear, 
I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my plea for mercy when I cried to you for help. When he cried out to God, pleading with him for mercy, God gave mercy. God gave deliverance. So he praises God. Verse 23, he calls on love toward God. Be in love with God. Love God. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And then finally, believe in God. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. David's physical condition gives us a spiritual truth. David, in the wilderness, as I've mentioned, hiding from his enemies, says to his men, men, as bad as this day is, We'll praise God because he's good. Secondly, we will love God. And third, we will believe in God. Can you imagine their condition? They're outnumbered. They're they're flanked on all sides. They've been run out of the capital. They're up in the hills. I envision this being kind of the end of the day. It's been a bad day. A lot of good men have died. And David's strengthening of them is from God's character. Listen, men. Even on this worst of days, we should praise God. Even in this time of despair, we will love God. Even in these moments that feel like years of defeat, we will not move our faith. We will trust in God. Fathers, apply it. To yourself and then to your children. What do I mean? You are the example to the coming generations, men, of whether we can trust God or not in the day of storm and struggle. If you run like a coward to some other stronghold for your protection, you're training your men to do the same thing. You're training your women to do the same thing. What's the application? You men heads of your homes, praise God. Love God. Have faith in God. And you will raise up young soldiers that in their worst days say, I still believe. Help my unbelief, but I I believe. Mainly to me, and I say that, but also to women. Mothers, when the stress of the day overwhelms you and life seems to be falling apart all about, and that's easily the case for both young and old. Young moms tend to have life falling apart because their little ones don't seem to be getting the discipline and structure and all the things you're trying to implement in their life, and they're just chaotic and crazy, you're falling, and it's falling apart. And you, when you flinch, they see it, and you're training them. Don't flinch. Trust in God. Praise Him, love Him, and express faith in Him. When you flinch, they flinch, women. When you give in, they will learn the pattern of giving in. When you indulge yourself to a moment's sin, you're training them to do the same in the day of struggle. When you turn to another fortress, they say, Mom trusted there, I'll trust. 
What David's doing at the end of this psalm is profound for the men that follow him. He's not passing lightly over all their struggles, but he's saying in the midst of this, sheer dread, overcoming over our heart, we praise God, we love God, we trust God. 